0: Well, today we are going to come at this particular text by doing a couple of different things. And if you are a note taker, you might find some room there in the back of your bulletin. You can jot a few things down. There should be a sheet that was given out. I kind of got it to the guys at the door late and hopefully you got a copy of that. If not, there may be some out in the foyer there are four things, though, that I want to do with this passage today as we uh, begin to make headway in this uh, section of Matthew that will take us all the way up to the, almost the close of chapter 4. I want to begin by giving what we might call just a big-picture view of the passage and set it within its broad context. Uh, secondly, after we give that kind of big-picture look, I want to, uh, want to address, uh, uh, we could call it an interpretive concern or an interpretive question. If you want a bigger word for that, we could call it a hermeneutical concern. Uh, We want to see how Matthew is dealing with a particular text. Uh, Matthew uses a well-known Old Testament text in our passage, one that most of you are probably fairly familiar with, and not just in this text, but also throughout the next several chapters, he's going to quote several Old Testament passages Uh, passages that may be familiar to you if you've read in the Old Testament, and they may be more familiar to you in a different context, uh, but Matthew is bringing them in here to make some statements, to demonstrate some points about Jesus, and we want to see kind of how he's doing that and what he's doing. A third thing I want us to do today is kind of lay out an outline or a structure for the text, and I I think that will help us uh, see... Uh, what Matthew's driving concern is, and then I want to end with some points of application. Um, So, kind of some some contextual issues, some interpretive issues, some structural issues, and then some applicational points uh, that hopefully we can draw from the central character in the text. And when I say the central character in the text, it may surprise you who the central character I think is in the text And it's not the Sunday school answer of Jesus. And you might say, Jesus is the central character in every text. Okay, I grant that. Um, But there is another character in this particular text uh, that is being put forward, I think for our consideration. So let's think about some, some big picture matters. Let's set the big picture or the context of this particular passage. When we arrive in chapter 1 in verses 18 to 25, uh, we enter into Matthew's kind of narrated or almost his scripted telling of the birth and the infancy of Jesus. Up to this point, we've had a a very uh, structured, kind of almost like a, a rigid text in verses 1 to 17. We've seen these these list of begats, so this guy begat, this guy, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and on and on and on. Um, and we, we have that uh, line we saw last time in chapter 1 and verse 17 about the way he structured this whole opening section, 14, 14, and 14. It's kind of very numerical. It's, it's very academic in that sense. It's just kind of some information one line after another. But when we come to Matthew chapter 1 verse 18, it kind of opens the drama kind of opens the story. And it even begins with the words in Matthew 1.18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ is as follows. I've given you the record of the genealogy. Now we're going to talk about his point of origin, how he came into the world. And this narrated telling of the life of Jesus is going to carry us uh, through the majority of the book. You might remember... We gave a broad outline a few weeks back, or several weeks ago maybe, of, of the whole of the book of Matthew. We talked about how in Matthew chapter chapter 1 to 4, we're introduced to the person of Jesus. And in Matthew chapter 5 through 25, we are told about the, the proclamation of Christ, or the preaching of Christ. And then in chapters 26 to 28, we're going to come to the passion of Christ, the, the, the picture of the cross and the resurrection. Well... For the coming few weeks that we have left, uh, I'm, the, the current plan is I will preach five more sermons in Matthew, and then uh, Ryan is going to come back up and tell us what all the cryptic things in Daniel 7 through 12 mean, and you'll be praying for him. Uh, that's, quite a, that's quite a text and quite a challenge he will have there, and I'm sure he'll do, do that well. But over the next few weeks, the next five weeks in particular, what I plan to do is take us through The first two chapters of this introduction to the person of jesus so again the person of jesus introduced in chapters one to four so the plan is to get through chapter two in the next five weeks and that will be quite the challenge um i told ben this morning i said you know if this was the old days you know back a year or so ago i'd probably take a couple of months just in 18 to 25 and we would just like camp there for a long time but Um, I don't want to do it quite that way. Um, I think if I do that, it's going to take forever to get through Matthew. Well, so we want to narrowly kind of focus in on these opening four chapters over the coming five weeks or so, and then, Lord willing, when we come back. And these opening two chapters, chapters one and two, really bring us to seeing Jesus as a boy, kind of his infancy, if you will. And then if we carry it all the way up to chapter 4, we come to the point where Jesus is now poised and prepared for his public ministry. Matthew, in these four chapters, is going to present to us the person of Jesus in several ways. Just kind of move through the text with me a little bit. As we come to Matthew chapter 1 and verses 18 to 25, Jesus is presented as the virgin-born son foretold by Isaiah, who would be Emmanuel, God, with us. And then if we move on into chapter 2, and we come to the story of the visit of the Magi, Jesus here is presented to us as the promised king who is born in the city of David, which is the city of the kings. He has come to rule and to shepherd his people Israel, and this is why Herod is Nervous and this is why Jerusalem is all a flutter if we move on in chapter two we come to this flight to Egypt where he moves from Jerusalem down into Egypt and here Matthew presents us with the the the, the person of Jesus faithfully tucked away and preserved in Egypt out of harm's way who will emerge and come forth as God's Son being called out of Egypt. While he is there, kept safe from Herod's diabolical plot, the nation is at a point of tears and weeping because many are killed. The children that are two years of age and below are killed because Herod is trying to to wipe out the Messiah. But in this, Jesus being kept safe is preserved, and the nation is given a reason for hope for the future. Matthew then goes on at the end of chapter 2 and talks about Jesus coming to live in a little town, an unexpected town of Nazareth. And here Jesus in his relocation and his settling in the far north in the city of Nazareth in the region of Galilee fulfills the words of the collective prophets that he, the Messiah, would be called a Nazarene. This takes us into chapter 3, where Jesus is going to be presented by Matthew as the Messiah, announced by a prophetic forerunner in the preaching of the wilderness prophet John the Baptist. And he is making ready the way of the Lord to come to his people. On into chapter 3, Jesus is declared to be God's own son by God's own voice from the heavens. He is anointed by the Holy Spirit. He is the fulfiller of all righteousness. Jesus is then, in Matthew chapter 4, driven out into the wilderness, led by the same Spirit that has anointed him to be tested in the wilderness and proven true. And finally, we come again to Galilee, where Matthew presents Jesus and sets him in a home base in such a place as Galilee, but not just Galilee, it's Galilee of the Gentiles, where they would see in his coming a great light that in God's providence would be a light which would then spread to all the nations of the world. So we can even see, even in this opening four chapters of of Matthew presenting Jesus, he begins with his birth and he ends with Jesus in Galilee of the Gentiles spreading his light to all the nations of the world. You can even see there almost the layout for the whole book of Matthew. Because what happens in the end of the book of Matthew? He sends out his disciples to go and do what? To make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And lo, he'll be with them to the very end of the age. Well, in the majority of these texts that we just kind of briefly mentioned in chapters 1 to 4, and we didn't delve into them at all, Lord willing, we'll do that here in the coming weeks. In the majority of these texts, among many others in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew uses what I would term here as fulfillment language. You see this language over and over and over. This particular event in Jesus' life fulfills what a prophet spoke about years ago. He points to particular events in the early life of Jesus that fulfill Old Testament texts. And this brings us to a second matter that we want to look at today, and that is an interpretive concern, an interpretive concern, or a hermeneutical concern. And if you would, take your Bible again and, and go back to Matthew chapter 1. Let me just, let me just point to one of these texts, and we'll just look at the one that we're going to to use today, in Matthew chapter 1, in verse 22. It says, now, all of this took place, this uh, visitation of Joseph by the angel, all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, behold, the virgin shall be with child, etc., all this took place to fulfill. This language is used over and over again in the book of Matthew. In fact, I think there's some explicit ten times that this particular term is used in the Gospel of Matthew, where Matthew was trying to tie this particular historical event to an Old Testament text. Now, this is not typically the way other Gospel writers do this. Mark, for example, Uh, He'll mention things that Matthew mentions, but Matthew, where where Matthew ties it to an Old Testament text, Mark will just kind of say it happened. He won't tie it to an Old Testament text. John and Luke uh, do similar things. But Matthew in particular is very specific about wanting to tie these particular events in the life of Jesus as fulfilling Old Testament anticipated events, Remember, Matthew is a gospel written primarily to Jewish people, trying to demonstrate that Jesus, the historically born Jesus, is indeed the anticipated Christ of the Old Testament, that Jesus is that one that was told about before. So it kind of makes sense why he would want to connect this to Old Testament scriptures. This is similar to what we see in the book of Acts. You'll recall Paul goes to the synagogue demonstrating from the scripture that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ or the Messiah. Well, I refer to this as an interpretive concern because some, some believe that Matthew, in order to make his points about Jesus or make these connections about Jesus, is playing what we might call fast and loose with the Bible. In other words, Matthew, I I read those Old Testament passages, and I don't see anything about Jesus in these. We actually got into a little bit of a conversation in Sunday school today about this in the new members class, right? Uh, and I think I see everybody from the membership class still in here now, so we didn't chase anybody off. So that's good, all right? Um, there's still time, right? We can, we can we can still totally blow it. But But some see Jesus or Matthew, rather, just playing kind of fast and loose with the Bible. Uh, There was a 20th century theologian, a rather liberal German theologian, uh, by the name of Rudolf Bultmann, and Bultmann's not really a name that you probably are familiar with, or most of you, anyway, but he was heavily influential in the 20th century in liberal scholarship, which has actually kind of crept its way into even conservative scholarship at times. Bultmann makes this comment. He says that... uh, The writers in the New Testament, and he's speaking broadly here, but Matthew would be covered in this. The writers in the New Testament do not gain new knowledge from the Old Testament texts, but read from or into them what they already know. In other words, Matthew and other New Testament writers, they're just coming to the Old Testament text with preconceived ideas about what they think they say, And then they read those ideas into the passage. Well, is this true? Is Matthew simply what we might call eisegeting the text? It's another one of those 25 cent theological terms. To eiseget a text is to read into a text what's not there, but it's what you wanted to be there. All right? So you just read it into the passage. As opposed to. exegeting a passage where you're drawing out of a text what is truly there. So is this true? Is Matthew just playing fast and loose with the Bible, reading into those passages what he wants to see? Well, you can anticipate, can you not, my answer. All right? My answer is no. He's not playing fast and loose with the Bible. He's not just reading into the text what he wants to find. He's reading from the text what God, by the Holy Spirit, has indeed put in the text. <clears throat> Let's kind of unpack this a little bit. I want to read from a quote. Uh, a brother by the name of R.T. France has made, I think, a helpful comment here. and It is a, uh, it is a longer quote, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break it up as we go through and, and try to keep us kind of moving forward in it. And uh, so we'll, uh, we'll make some points as we go through. Why is it that modern scholars, modern critical scholars, even liberal scholars, but even sometimes even conservative scholars that we would consider our brothers and sisters in Christ, why is it that they seem to, to think sometimes that Matthew and other writers are just reading into the Old Testament what is not really there? France gives this helpful comment. He says, part of the difficulty which the modern critical interpreter finds with Matthew, derives from our tendency to assume that a text can only have one meaning and one application. Now stick with me for just a moment. The idea of a prophecy, which can be fulfilled more than once in different ways, or of a historical report, which may at the same time embody a pattern of the divine activity which points forward to a subsequent fuller embodiment is foreign to our exegetical canons. What he means by that is our exegetical standards, the standards that scholarship sometimes puts on the way we must deal with the Bible. One of the things that he's trying to get at here is that many modern critical interpreters of the Bible believe that the scripture is a human document. Now, we will not argue the point that it's a human document. We believe it is a human document. We believe Matthew wrote Matthew. We believe Paul wrote Romans. We believe Luke wrote Luke. We believe Isaiah wrote Isaiah, not Isaiah 2 and 3 and 4, uh, or 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, and 4th Isaiah. There are some that believe that multiple Isaiahs wrote Isaiah, which really gets kind of weird. Um, We just believe that Isaiah wrote Isaiah. We believe Moses wrote the Pentateuch. And we believe something else. We believe that all of those human authors were what? They were guided and led by and taught by the Holy Spirit as they wrote the texts of Scripture, ensuring that we hold to not just a single concept of authorship, but a dual concept of authorship. And the Bible is ultimately a divine book and not simply a human text. Let me take you to a passage. In the book of Peter. Go to First Peter chapter one. I'm glad we had Sunday school today because it cleared up for me whether this was 2 Peter or 1 Peter. I sent the class to 2 Peter today. So 1 Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter, first Peter, I keep doing it. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Do you notice what happens there in verse 10? It says that the prophets of old, those writers of the Old Testament scripture, they worked. They were diligent writers. They were diligent researchers. They were students of the word themselves. And it says they made searches and inquiries. They they didn't just sit down, generally speaking, and have the text of the Old Testament dictated to them. Now, there are places in the Old Testament where God does give the word by way of dictation. But generally speaking, this particular text is telling us they studied. They made searches. They made inquiries, but they weren't doing it alone. Notice verse 11. They were seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. In other words, here we have both human and divine authorship of the text of the Scripture. Look over in Second Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 19. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. He says, So we have the prophetic word, that is the Old Testament text, made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. But know this first of all, verse 20, know this first of all, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. This is a a key text on understanding what we refer to as the doctrine of the divine inspiration of Scripture, that God, by his Spirit, is moving these writers to write what he would have them to write. Let's think of another text in the book of 2 Timothy. We have to be quick here because we'll get bogged down. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable. All scripture is inspired by God. It's a big, long, fancy Greek word, theopneustos, all right? Say that really fast, all right? Four or five times. Theopneustos. You can, you can hear theo or theos in that, God. Pneustos, the idea of like breath, pneuma, spirit, God breathed. I think this is a better translation, I think, than inspired by God. It's not that the scripture is being breathed into. It's that the written scripture is, in fact, the very outbreathing of God's own breath. When I read the word of God, I'm reading this. I know this sounds kind of redundant. When I read the word of God, I'm reading what? The word of God. It is God's own breath. Breath. All Scripture is God-breathed. Modern critical scholarship often neglects the necessity of the belief in the divine authorship of Scripture. France is writing against just such a view. He says, Rather, just to back up a little bit, but to approach Scripture in this way, as Matthew does, is not necessarily to cast proper exegesis to the winds. Rather, it is to recognize the dimension of an ongoing and consistent divine purpose. You hear that? Matthew recognizes when he reads the Old Testament text, there is in that text an ongoing and divine purpose in the text. It's not separated from here's God and their man down here writing this text all by himself. No, God is, has, a, has a divine and consistent ongoing purpose in the writing of the scripture, which may invest the text with, and here's a, a term he uses, a census plenior, to be perceived by those who come to it in the light of further experience and revelation such an interpretation may go beyond the conscious awareness of the human author, i.e., an Old Testament writer like Isaiah. It may go beyond the conscious awareness of the human author of the original text, not by setting his meaning aside as irrelevant, but by seeing it in the wider context of divine activity to which it rightly belongs. When Matthew comes and lays hold of these Old Testament texts, Old Testament writers may not have fully understood everything they were writing about. But Matthew now, by virtue of the Holy Spirit guiding him to understand the text of the Old Testament, and writing now a New Testament text, he fills out a more full understanding of the meaning of that Old Testament text. And this is what Francis is getting at when he says that Matthew and other New Testament writers are seeing it... That is, they see the Old Testament text in the wider context of divine activity in which it rightly belongs. He goes on and says this. While such an approach could lend itself to the artificial construction of allegory, which we find at Qumran. Qumran was a uh, community of Jewish people that had separated themselves from the, 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 the main Jewish body there in the first century and had withdrawn to an area around the Dead Sea Uh, where we have found the Dead Sea Scrolls. There's a Qumran community. Uh, They were very devout and tried to separate themselves from the corrupted Jews of the city. And they were often given to allegory, kind of taking Old Testament texts and just kind of fancifully making them say all kinds of things. He said, I would argue, though, that in Matthew's case, it does not. Matthew's not just going off into some kind of fanciful allegory, um, making things up as he goes, goes along. And just a footnote here at this point, why, is, why does this matter? This matters because the only place we're going to find, or the place we're going to find this idea of, um, of fulfillment is not only here in Matthew chapter 1, it's throughout the whole of the book of Matthew. The concept of fulfillment is going to come up over and over and over again. So if you're sitting there going, I'm totally lost, I don't know what he's talking about, all right. well, take comfort in the fact that we're going to come back to this, In the coming months, several times, we're going to find these kinds of texts over and over and over. What I want you to get, though, is Matthew, when he quotes these Old Testament passages, he's not just making them say whatever he wants to say. He is seeing that God in the flow of history is is moving things forward. He's moving things forward from Isaiah's day into the day of Christ. And in the coming of Christ, more is clear more light is given, more understanding is found than Isaiah had before. He goes on to say this. While such an approach, we'll back up just a half a sentence here. While such an approach could lend itself to the artificial construction of allegory, which we find at Qumran, it need not. And I would argue that in Matthew's case, it does not. But rather that, however imaginative some of his secondary applications of Scripture may be, they are not inconsistent with a proper understanding of the original purpose of the passage. The link between the original purpose in that original text and Matthew's perceived fulfillment in his text is precisely in a relational concept of fulfillment in Jesus. In other words, because Jesus has come, those Old Testament texts that pointed forward to him now can be seen in their full light. Matthew Barrett made this comment about this particular idea. He said, in other words, events in biblical history anticipate events in Jesus' ministry. Did you hear that? I think that's more clear than what France had to say. Francis was good but it was long, events in biblical history anticipate events in Jesus's ministry, and that Jesus fills them with new significance. This involves a patristic concept, or a concept from the early church, known as recapitulation. Some of the guys that are coming on Tuesday morning just got excited, and they're like, oh, That's a Tuesday morning term. Or they just got discouraged because they realize it's a Tuesday morning term, and they're like, I don't remember what it means. But let's see if we can unpack it a little bit. By recapitulating these biblical events, these Old Testament texts, in the life of Jesus, Jesus demonstrates the providence of God in fulfilling his promises to Israel. Are you with me? There are Old Testament promises that God has given to the people of Israel. All right? And His providence does what? His providence guides all things throughout all time, bringing about His intended purpose. And so when we go from Isaiah to Matthew, we've spanned hundreds of years. Now listen, but we have not missed a moment of providence. Do you get that? Between. Isaiah and Matthew, what links Isaiah to Matthew? Over it all is God's overarching rule and reign over all things, his providential control of working out all things after his intended purpose. And we see in Matthew the intended purposes of God expressed through Isaiah, now being made clear in the ministry of Jesus. Now, we mentioned that word, recapitulation. Write that one down, you can amaze your friends at Christmas, all right? Recapitulation, What what is that? Recapitulation is the idea that all things are being summed up in Christ. Let me give you a Bible verse to kind of connect it to. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Let's back up to verse 7 going to be in verse 10, so we're going to warm up to it, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In him, this is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him or in Christ. God's will, God's eternal purpose, God's eternal decree is now made clear to us in the coming of Christ. With a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, in these times that Paul is writing of in that first century, Christ's coming, the summing up of all things in Christ, or we could say the recapitulating of all things in Christ. We've mentioned before, Genesis, Genesis, excuse me, Galatians, I think it's in chapter four, where it says that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. God is doing something in the sending of Jesus that the world, the Jews in particular, but we're going to notice even in Matthew chapter 2, the Magi are coming, the Gentile nations. Many that God is calling Jews and Gentiles have been what? They've been anticipating this for years. And finally, Jesus comes. And in his coming, everything in the plan of God is being summed up in him, under him, as the head of this new covenant reality. Irenaeus, this is from the book, men, that we've been reading together on Tuesdays, makes this comment in chapter 37. He says, In this way, he gloriously accomplished our salvation and fulfilled the promise made to the patriarchs and dissolved the old disobedience. The Son of God become the Son of David and the Son of Abraham. For in accomplishing and recapitulating these things in himself, in order to obtain life for us, the word of God became flesh by the economy of the virgin in order to undo death and vivify man. For we were in the prison of sin, we who have become sinners and fallen under the power of death. Jesus, in coming, in fulfillment of those Old Testament prophecies, those Old Testament texts, recapitulates, sums up everything in himself. He completes and does what was left incomplete in the first Adam, if you will. The first Adam failed. The second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, has succeeded. France sums up Matthew's presentation of Jesus with these words. He says, what we have in these chapters, and this is these opening chapters of Matthew, what we have in these chapters, in other words, is not a random gathering of embarrassingly inappropriate texts. And if you ever have a conversation with somebody who doesn't believe the Bible, they will look at these kinds of passages and they will say, Isaiah's talking about a woman having a baby. He's not talking about Jesus. Jeremiah's talking about Rachel weeping for her children. He's not talking about Jesus. There is no Old Testament text that says Jesus will come from Nazareth. See, it's not about Jesus. And... Frankly, some of them simply say, we should be embarrassed about this. But France says we do not have in these chapters a random gathering of embarrassingly inappropriate text, but rather the product of a sophisticated and probably lengthy engagement with Scripture in a way which goes beyond our concepts of what he calls here, quote, scientific exegesis, precisely because it believes—listen— in God's purposeful control of both the words and the events of the Old Testament, so that it is only in the light of their ultimate fulfillment in the Messiah that their significance can be appreciated by Christian hindsight. If you believe, brothers and sisters, in the superintending providence of God over all history, it will not catch you by surprise in Matthew chapter 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and on through the rest of the book that Matthew is drawing from the Old Testament and pointing a light to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in fact, isn't he doing what his Lord himself taught him? That all of Scripture bears witness to who? It bears witness to Jesus over and over and over. Look in in Luke chapter 24. One of the comments made in class today was kind of humorous. Uh, one, of the, one of the members had been at a conference. I hope I can share this. I'm not naming names. And uh, they uh, had, a, had an encounter with someone who sat there and said something like, you know, they were talking about the Bible pointing to Jesus. And the guy's like, really? The whole Bible? Every verse? Something like that. I'm paraphrasing. And we're like, yeah, it's all about who? It's all about him. Look in Luke 24. Jesus, after the resurrection of the dead, he's, appear- he's appeared to the uh, two men, Cleopas and the other brother, uh, on the uh, road to Emmaus. Wouldn't you have loved to have been on that uh, road that day, listening to what he had to say? Well, I think we can see something of what he would have said uh, just by reading the Gospels themselves, because the Gospels are like the summary of so much, they often summarize Jesus' own teaching. Notice what it says in, uh, in Luke 24, 44, now, this is when he comes to all the disciples. They're all together there. And he says, he said to them, Luke 24, he said to them, these are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, those are the three basic portions of the Old Testament to the Jew, the law, the prophets, and the writings. And the longest portion of the writings for the Jew was the Psalms. So sometimes they would just sum it up by saying the Psalms. All the things written about me in the law, the prophets, and the Psalms must be what? Fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name in all the nations from, to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. So in other words, we should anticipate when we come to a gospel record like Matthew, we should anticipate that Matthew is going to be drawing from the Old Testament much fodder, if you will, much text that he will then come and press and apply to Christ and then exhort us to believe. Well, in seeing how he does that, let's look again in Matthew chapter 1, uh, verses 18 to 25. If you have that handout that was given earlier, kind of keep that close, and we are gonna we're gonna unpack a few things uh, by way of that. Matthew 1:18. Let me just read again this text just to kind of get it get it going in our minds one more time. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows: When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Old Testament text that Matthew is randomly going to throw in here. Tongue-in-cheek theory. Hopefully you get that. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his dream and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now central to this passage is a doctrine, a doctrine that we know of as the virgin birth. The virgin birth, or we might more properly refer to it as the virgin conception. The virgin conception. One definition of the virgin birth or the virgin conception here, let me give this, uh, just from a contemporary writer, he simply summed it up this way. The virgin birth of Jesus, which is more accurately labeled the virginal conception of Jesus teaches that Jesus Christ was born apart from the normal process of procreation, but was supernaturally conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of her without sin. If you look back in chapter 1, you have in chapter 1 verses 2 through 15 this series of begats. Now, I say begat because that's kind of the old King James that I grew up with, but it's translated for us in the New American Standard as was the father of, all right? So if you start in verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And probably if you have an old King James, it's something like Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob was the father or Jacob begat Judah and his brothers, Something, something like that, all right? Well, come down to verse 16. Let's back up to verse 15. I want you to notice the break in verse 16. Verse 15 says, Eliud was the father of Eleazar. Eleazar. Eleazar was the father of Mathen, and Mathen the father of Jacob. And Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. How did we get that? How do we get Jesus... Remember, we have begat, 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 begat. begat, And then in verse 16, for Jesus, there's no what? There's no begat. How did he get here if there's no begat? How is he connected to Joseph if there's no begat? Well, verses 18 to 25 answer the question of how Jesus got here. Remember, verse 18 is what? It, is, it, it, it says in the New American Standard that the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. The word birth there is probably not the best word for that. It's not the normal word for birth. In fact, the word for birth in verse 18 is the same word that's used in verse 1 for genealogy. How do you get genealogy and birth? Well, the translators are probably trying to emphasize that verses 18 to 25 are about the birth of Jesus. But I would contend they're not really about the birth of Jesus. They're about the origins of the Messiah. How does Jesus, the Messiah, come into the world? Verses 18 to 25 answer that question. In fact, there's only one reference in verses 18 to 25 literally to the birth of Jesus, and it's in a subordinate clause in verse 25. Notice verse 25. But he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. That's the word for birth. It's a different word than we find in verse 18, but you wouldn't know that in your English translations because 18 and 25 both just have the word what? The word birth, right? But the word in verse 18 is a word for origins or genesis or, as it's translated in the New American Standard, genealogy. You can reach back in your mind several weeks ago when we looked at Matthew 1.1 where we talked about that Matthew 1.1 is the New Testament's book of Genesis, It's the book of origins or the book of beginnings, all right? Verse 18 is about the beginnings of the Christ. Now, why does this matter? Why does the birth of Jesus matter? Why do the beginnings of Jesus matter? Why does it matter that he is conceived of a virgin? Why does he have to be born at all? In fact, one uh, comment I I noticed, I didn't bring it with me, but J. Gresham Machen uh, writes a book called Christianity and Liberalism. I'd love that to be one of our guidebooks one day. It's It's a great work, written early 20th century. And Machen, personifying the liberal preacher of the day, basically says things like, it doesn't matter if he was born. It just matters if you believe in him kind of puts Jesus in the realm of Peter Pan, you know, or pixie dust. It doesn't matter if it's real. You just got to what? You just got to believe, right? Irenaeus would say no. Irenaeus argues in chapter 38 and 39 of his work, in these words, he says, it sounds almost Pauline, like 1 Corinthians 15, Paul arguing for the resurrection, but here he's arguing for the importance of the birth. And if one does not accept his birth from a virgin, how can he accept his resurrection from the dead? For it is not as, for it is it is no astonishing nor marvelous or extraordinary thing if without being born he neither rose from the dead. Moreover we cannot even speak of the resurrection of one who is unbegotten. Since one who is unbegotten is also immortal, the one who is the one who has not undergone birth or been begotten will neither undergo death. For one who has not had the beginning of a man, how is he able to assume his end? So, if he was not born, neither did he die. Listen to how he, he rashed just his reason here and why it's important. If he was not born, neither did he die. If he did not die, neither was he raised from the dead. If he is not raised from the dead, death is not conquered, nor its kingdom destroyed. And if death is not conquered, how are we to ascend to life, having fallen under death from the beginning? Brothers and sisters, the virgin birth is of great consequence to the gospel of the church. Early in the 20th century, between somewhere around 1920 and 1925, there were a series of like 95 addresses given by various men that were all collected in 12 little neat volumes known as the Fundamentals. Now, Fundamentalists often get a bad rap, and sometimes Fundamentalists should get a bad rap. And if your background is in Fundamentalism, this is not against you. This is simply to say um, Fundamentalism has some has some issues, All right, You know, Reformed Baptists don't have any issues. Right, so we can talk about the fundamentalists, all right. So Reformed Baptists have some issues, all right? But fundamentalists have some as well. But the concept of holding to the fundamentals, those 95 addresses given between 1920 and 1925 uh, are full of some glorious doctrinal truths that we need not neglect and not let go of. Things like I, I love. Julius, every time he gets up here to read the Bible, he says this is the inspired, the infallible, and the inerrant word of God. Don't think that we do not hold to the inerrancy of the Scripture because our confession doesn't use the word inerrancy. Our confession does not use the word inerrancy. It uses the word infallibility, which is greater than inerrancy. Infallibility simply says it cannot err. Inerrancy says it doesn't err. We affirm the infallibility of the Bible. It can't err. Not only does it not err, it cannot err. Infallibility embodies in its umbrella inerrancy. <clears throat> Irenaeus' logic is tight. And it is something that should be heard. If Jesus was not born, to borrow from Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, then you're still in your sins. You're still in your sins if Jesus wasn't born of a virgin. Well, there's so many things to do with that, but I I need to to move to the fourth. And um, I know this will be hard. But you can just take the chiastic structure on your piece of paper and take it home and study it diligently, I'm sure. The whole point of that structure is to show that at the heart of this section is the message from the angel confirming the words of the prophet that a virgin shall be with child and shall give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. His name in Isaiah is Emmanuel, God with us. His name in the New Testament, in this manifestation of Jesus, is Jesus, God saves. And how is it that God saves? By being with us. One writer said that his presence is a saving presence. Well, Me mention a few points of application. And when I said application earlier, I said what we're gonna do is really a character focus here. And if I ask you the central character in verses 18 to 25 was, you would probably say Jesus. I don't want to say you're wrong because that'd be like you know terrible to tell you, no, it's not about Jesus. It is about Jesus. But the central character as the narrative begins to unfold, surprisingly. Is Joseph. It's not a passage we've already talked about. It. It's not a passage about the birth of Jesus. You want to talk about the birth of Jesus? Go to Luke. Luke will tell you a lot about the birth of Jesus. Now Matthew mentions the birth of Jesus, but like I said, it's a subordinate clause at the very end of the text, and then it goes on uh, between Matthew, the end of Matthew one and the beginning of Matthew chapter two. Uh, Jesus has jumped almost twenty-four months—the to toddler phase. All right, uh, when the magi come, he is uh, he is a little tyke probably roaming around a house uh, with Mary and Joseph chasing him. Who knows what he's doing exactly. Right? Doing what little toddlers do without sin. And you might think what do toddlers do without sin? And You might sit there and think well, maybe Jesus was like dormant. Doesn't move. Okay I'm 30. It's time to start the public ministry. Um, no well Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing to see what toddlers do without sin? Every mom says, amen. Yeah, all right. And, uh, well, he did something. Aren't they cute? Sometimes they're actually cute doing the right thing. And so, well, Joseph here, though, is really the central character. Can you imagine what it would have been like to have been Joseph? To get the information... Not the information from the angel. I mean before that. To get the information that Mary is pregnant. Now this is devastating news. You can only imagine how he is a man who has probably in his family environment, the culture of the day, it's an arranged marriage, it's been planned for some time. Mary is probably a young girl. She may be somewhere around 13 or 14 years of age should get some 13 14 year old girls attention right there all right um this is not biblical directive for getting married at 14 that's not what this is please understand what's going on all right but that's probably what she was uh when she when a a jewish girl would have been over like 12 and a half they were quote-unquote at marriable age all right up until that point in time they were in their father's house under their father's control and that was it Right? And the father could give her away or not. Um, so we don't know how old Joseph was. You know, there's all kinds of different stories. He was like an old guy, a widowed guy. and, and that's, there's, there's nothing in the Bible about that. Joseph was just a man. Right? He's probably a young man. He's probably you know, in his teens, probably in his older teens. I don't know. Um, but we're not supposed to make anything weird about this. Uh, we're not supposed to make anything, oh, that's awkward, You know, that wouldn't fly in 21st century society. It doesn't have to fly in 21st century society. This isn't 21st century society. It's 1st century society, and so we have to understand the Bible in its own context, all right? But that's what's going on here. And he has just received word that Mary is with child. It says there in verse 18, they are betrothed, kind of like engagement on steroids, all right? They're not married yet. Uh, but it's more than just dating, it's more than courting, and it's less than being married. It's serious, and the only way out of it is death or divorce. Right? Um, He finds that she is with child by the Holy Spirit, and he being a righteous man, meaning he is a holy man, not just he's a nice guy, he's a righteous man, and he doesn't want to disgrace her, so he chooses the option of divorce. By that particular time, divorce was an acceptable uh, procedure there amongst the Jewish community. Now, by Old Testament standards in Deuteronomy, had she been found guilty of adultery, she could have been what? She could have been stoned. Now, the text doesn't say uh, what Joseph thinks about why she's pregnant. I mean, you can only imagine on a human level that she's had relationships with a man. Somehow, she's become pregnant but he desires to not disgrace her and he desires to put her away secretly he emerges in this text as a humble righteous man just think about a couple things looking at Joseph that I think we can we can draw from for ourselves Look at the end of the story. After after there's this uh, this, uh, visit by the angel, which would have been another level of overwhelming information. Now he's got this information about his his betrothed wife. They're going to be married. He now has this information by an angel. He's had a dream. Um, He awakes from the dream in verse 24. He awakes from his sleep. And did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took Mary his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Just think with me for a few moments about Joseph. Joseph comes to see Jesus in a way that strengthens his faith in the promise of God. Joseph doesn't come from this dream when he awakens to say, you've got to be kidding. I'm I'm not going to marry her. I mean, can you imagine the scandal that uh, that he's going to have to embrace? What is it that's happened between verse 19, where he's going to put her away secretly, and verse 24, where he's going to take her to be his wife? Are you with me? Think with me. What happens between the two things? Well, you say, he had a dream. Um, Matthew has interjected this uh, text from Isaiah chapter 7. What has happened between verse 19 and verse 24? What has happened in that space is that Joseph has been confronted with the word of God. That, that confrontation with the Word of God is brought out two ways in this text. It's brought out by the dream. The angel comes. And what is, it, what is an angel? I'm not meaning to be you know, overly simplistic, but think about what an angel is an angel is a messenger, an angel is a steward of a message that they receive from someone else. The angel is a messenger from God for God. Two men. The angel comes with a word from God for Joseph. So take the angel out for a moment. What has Joseph encountered? He has encountered the very voice of God. I hear it in the form of a dream. We don't have time to talk about dreams and all that kind of stuff. We'll maybe hit that later on with some kind of other class. Right? That's what he encounters. It wasn't uncommon in this environment. And it's going to happen again later on with Joseph about going to Egypt, about coming back getting away from Herod and things like that. He encounters in the angelic visitation, in the dream, he encounters the word of Christ, the word of God. Secondly, it's driven home by the fact that Matthew brings in this text from Isaiah. All this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Now, it's very subtle, but notice what he does here. Matthew doesn't do this every time he mentions fulfillment language. But he does it at least a couple times, and this is one of them. All this took place to fulfill what was, here's the phrase, spoken by the Lord through the prophet. What do we have there? We have the dual nature, the dual authorship of Scripture. Spoken by the Lord through the prophet. All the prophets were those who stood in the council of God who had God's word. The prophet did not run on his own. Didn't speak on his own. The prophet stood in the counsel of God, received God's word, spoke God's word. That's what Isaiah did. Matthew is driving home at least two different ways how Joseph is confronted with the word of God. And what I would say to you is, what moved him from verse 19, I'm going to divorce her, to verse 24, I'm going to marry her, is that he heard the word of God and believed the word of God. And that presses Upon my own heart. Are you the kind of person that when you are presented with the Word of God, you obey the Word of God? Or are you the kind of person that when you're confronted with the Word of God, you quibble, you qualify, you back up? Can you imagine all the things Joseph could have interjected here as objections? But God, don't you realize she's pregnant? Don't you realize the scandal? Don't you realize what's going to be said of the child? Don't you realize what our parents will say? Don't you realize what... Don't you realize? (laughs) He heard the word of God, and he did what? He obeyed. He was strengthened in his faith according to the promise of God. The angel said to him, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Joseph, the the child that is in the young lady that you're supposed to marry is your Savior. The child that is in Mary, in the womb of Mary, is going to be your deliverer. He's going to bring for you what you've longed for in your soul, the forgiveness of your sins. And when he hears this message about Jesus, he does what? He believes it. Friend, listen, the word of God to you is this one Jesus who has come through this young woman, Mary, who has come into the world, has come to save sinners. He's come to save you. He's come to bring the forgiveness of sins. Will you quibble with that word? Or will you, like Joseph, believe God? Believe God and obey. Secondly, secondly, we ought to be encouraged to this kind of obedience. Not only should our faith be strengthened as believers, we should be encouraged to obey this word and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Thirdly, let me quickly say, The act of Joseph, I kind of gave you the second one. Go back and listen to the first one again. It kind of opens up the second one too. But let me give you the third one. The act of Joseph in naming the Lord Jesus Christ is, is glorious. It says he keeps her a virgin until she gave birth. And we don't have time to go into the whole idea of the perpetual virginity of Mary and Roman Catholic dogma, things such as that, Mary did not ever remain a virgin. Mary and Joseph had a marriage. Mary and Joseph were together. Mary and Joseph had other sons and other daughters. Jesus had other siblings. Thanks be to God. We don't need that. We don't need to keep Mary pure to make Jesus pure. Because the way God ensured that the one born of Mary would be the Holy One of God was that he bypassed Joseph. <laughs> There's a whole series of sermons there. He bypassed Joseph. All right, and he came upon her by the Holy Spirit. Not in some kind of weird sexual way, but in a creative way to make this body for the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what it says in verse 25. He kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and almost when it's all said and done, and he called his name Jesus. He called his name Jesus. Seeing what Joseph does points us to the Lord Jesus as well. By way of giving him the name, which means God or Yahweh or Jehovah saves. Brothers and sisters, looking at Joseph and his act, where he does have his faith strengthened in God's promise, we should be encouraged in our own faith to trust the promise of God. We should be encouraged by Joseph's obedience, who sets for us a good example of what it means to follow in obedience to the word that God gives us. And we, like Joseph, should take great encouragement to see What he named this one, he named him Jesus. Jesus means God saves. Will you quibble about the word of God? Will you obey like Joseph? Will you look to this one, the Lord Jesus Christ, who brings to you and brings to me and brings to all who will receive him the forgiveness of their sins? Let's pray together. Father, we bless your name. We thank you, O God, for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ into the world as the long-anticipated Messiah. We thank you, O God, for the faithfulness of Joseph. We thank you for his obedience to the word of God that was given. We thank you that he does indeed, as he was commanded, names this one born of Mary, Jesus. We thank you not simply for his name. We thank you for who he is. We thank you that in this one we have the hope of heaven the forgiveness of our sins. I pray, God, that any who may be here today that do not know this Jesus, that do not know him as a Savior, that do not know him as one who can bring forgiveness, I pray today would be the day that they would look to him and they would find great hope. The same hope that Joseph had, the same hope that Mary had when she calls him and her Magnificat, her Savior, God can be the same hope that each one of us can have here today by placing our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I pray you'd encourage us at this brief look at the coming of the Messiah into the world through this young virgin woman that he might be conceived by the Holy Spirit, that he might be brought into the world to save sinners. We bless you for him and for his work in Jesus' name.